right. Thank you, Joanna, for sharing with us uh, about some of the uh, availability in the nursery there. And thank you to the, those that do serve in the nursery. Uh, I'm glad that, that you like toddlers. That's not quite my specialty. So glad that there are those here in this church that can love on them. Good morning, Bethel. Yeah, we'll work with that. Um, my name is Mark. I am one of the pastors here, and I get to dive into God's word with you this morning. And I am I'm looking forward to that. Okay, we can work with that too, apparently. Um, we're going to pray right now because of that. Uh, <laughs> hey, Lord, I am thankful that we can come and gather together as your church, uh, that we can sing songs uh, of your goodness, of your greatness, of your love for us. Uh, and then, Lord, we, we turn the page as we literally dive onto the page of Scripture uh, and come to hear your word. Uh, my hope uh, as, we, as we do this, that, uh, that your word would guide us, that your word would, would lift us up, that your word would sustain us, that your word would encourage us. Uh, and, Lord, you tell us that it is capable of doing all of these things. Uh, so we ask that it would in each one. Uh, Lord, we don't know. Um, where we all come this morning, we come from different places, different experiences, different weeks. We all come and sit under the one word of the Heavenly Father. Uh, so Lord, guide us as you can, as you are capable of. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I am officially in my 40s now. Uh, <laughs> glad somebody's excited about that. Uh, so I think I'm allowed a few old man get off my lawn moments now, right? <laughs> Not too many. Uh, one way, one, one thing that I see, uh, movie trailers, um, they've always been kind of a, a fun way to, to get people excited for a, a future and upcoming movie. But I was thinking back to how this kind of experience has changed over the years and thinking back to when I was a kid, uh, the only way that you got to see a movie trailer was if you went to another movie and that trailer happened to be playing in front of it. You didn't know what movie trailers you were going to see. You rarely knew what movies were coming out. Um, but you had to go and kind of put in the work to get to see just a glimpse of the movie. I did a little bit of research and realized that it was around 1998, it was the first time that they started releasing movie trailers online that you could go and look at uh, on your own time. And I remember doing this. Uh, it probably took about 45 minutes to download like a 90-second clip that showed up about this big on my computer screen, but that seemed really cool back then. Now, as I, a couple weeks back, I was driving uh, in to church and, and, and my phone dinged. And, and when I got here, I realized Google was letting me know that like the fifth Spider-Man trailer had been released and to follow this link to go and watch it. And, and so there's this constant access to, to trailers and previews and, and all of these things. And I like something about that older system. Now, here's my, that's my old man moment. Because you sort of got one shot at it. And you saw a movie and you went knowing, like, I want to know what's in these trailers. I want to know what movies to get excited for. And you just kind of grabbed onto whatever information and it fueled this excitement within you. Now a trailer gets released and they put it up on YouTube and then somebody goes through and they chop it up frame by frame and learn more about the movie, you know, in a two-minute trailer than you learn by actually going to the whole movie itself. But back then, you sort of got this, this snapshot, this look forward, this trajectory for your excitement that you would theoretically experience someday that you could hope to uh, partake in in the future. This morning, uh, if I do my job well, 
we're going to experience a little bit of a moment like that alongside three of Jesus's disciples. Because they're not gonna get to see the whole thing yet, but they're gonna get to be treated to a preview of coming attractions in the person of Jesus Christ. He's gonna peel back his humanity and expose them to the greatness of his deity in a moment that we call the transfiguration. Uh, We're gonna be in Mark chapter nine this morning if you want to find it in your Bibles. The context uh, for where we're picking up this morning, it's right after some pretty significant developments between Jesus and his disciples. In the previous chapter, Peter declared accurately that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus followed this up, not by patting him on the back, but by telling them all what would happen to this Messiah that in the future he was going to be killed and raised back to life after three days. He tells them this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So you see this moment where Jesus is elevating the cost of discipleship for his disciples and and looking forward uh, to us as well. So as we're jumping right in at at the start of chapter nine in verse one, Jesus adds this. He said to them, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power, which is a pretty loaded statement and has long been debated and interpreted in several ways. There's a a group of scholars, plenty of scholars um, that think that he's pointing to what happens uh, immediately next, the transfiguration that we're gonna look at this morning. We will see it absolutely as a demonstration of the power of the kingdom of God. Um, It fits with what he's saying. I think what's interesting in the the next verse in verse two that kicks off the transfiguration, there's a time uh, indicator that says that the transfiguration occurs uh, a week after uh, this moment that Jesus says this to them. And so I sort of see that as it would be a surprising statement instead of just saying, this will happen in a week to say, none of you will taste death until this event uh, occurs. So I think the, the, the proximity of it helps us maybe steer away from, from concluding that it's that. Uh, others have heard this instruction um, as, as tied into the end times and sort of an end times perspective. And if you look back at chapter eight in Mark, um, Jesus is talking about coming in his father's glory accompanied by angels. And so some people see what he says there and tie that with here in, in chapter nine, verse one, and, and see it as looking much, much further into the future. But as we read that statement here today, you know, 2,000-ish years uh, from when uh, this was written, the people that it was said to have tasted death. Uh, And so you you would have to uh, figure out what you mean by and what Jesus means by that phrase to make it fit uh, in that context. And then the third option uh, is that Jesus is in the process here, particularly in you know, chapters uh, eight and nine here, uh, of helping his disciples understand what's going to happen to him in the future with his death and his resurrection. And so it would make sense that in that context, as he's pointing to a display of power of the kingdom of God, that he's pointing at the resurrection and that it will be a moment where the disciples that are witnessing will truly grasp the power. So in my opinion, 
uh, open-handedly that that third option that he's pointing to the resurrection is the one that makes uh, the most sense. I think it requires kind of the, the least mental gymnastics to make work. But that's what Jesus tells them. You are going to see my power. But that takes us right here into um, picking up in verse two, and we're gonna begin the account of the transfiguration. I'm calling this section uh, Life on the Mountaintop. See, mountaintop here is a location where it's gonna happen, but it's also symbolically of a glorious experience, of, of a good time. Mark chapter nine, picking up in verse two, says this. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say and they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone that what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they had done to him everything they wished just as it was written about him. Now there's a lot going on here. There are a bunch of details uh, and it could be tempting to sort of dive into each little detail and try to figure out exactly what it means and exactly what it ties in. Um, But it could be easily be one of those stories where where we get so hung up on the little details that we miss the bigger picture. So I wanna make sure that we keep an eye on the bigger point that's being made. But that said, there are some details that kind of will help us as we grasp that. But the first one is noticing who was there. This is not a general admission party. Jesus invites what you would consider sort of his inner circle, uh, Peter, James, and John up the mountain with him. Uh, And these three disciples certainly display a prominence throughout the gospels. Uh, We see that they were among the first disciples called. Uh, They often get listed first when you see a a listing of the disciples. Uh, I don't think that that Jesus picked his disciples the same way that we used to pick teams at dodgeball at recess, right? But based on this group of men that often like to argue over who was the greatest, you imagine at some point undocumented, one of them went like, yeah, but he picked me first, right? Right. so these, the, the, these guys probably knew, um, knew where they got, got picked. These three disciples in particular got to see some things the other disciples did not get to see. Uh, there's a healing in Mark chapter five of a, of a young girl that, that Jesus brings them into and does not bring the rest. Later in the, the garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus pulls away to go and pray, we see that he grabs these three disciples to go pray with him. And in this moment, he decides to bring these three disciples along as well. So at best, we can just conjecture as to to why he grabbed these three and and not all of them. But we can at least look at the results of it, of the outcome of it. They got to see the fullest and most complete picture of who Jesus was and very up close and in a very personal way. We're told the event takes place up on a high mountain, 
And if you read through your Bible, there's a long history of significant stuff happening up on top of big mountains. Uh, we know that the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac was up on a mountain. Moses went up the mountain to go receive the Ten Commandments. Uh, one of my personal favorite Bible stories is Elijah and his battle with the, the prophets of Baal, and that occurs up on a mountain. So if, you, if you've read your Bible, you could probably list others. Uh, and then add this event to the list. The transfiguration occurs, and, and we're told specifically, on the top of a high a mountain. Here's what's important to note. Jesus didn't need to go up there to reach his full power potential. He, he didn't get a clear deity cell signal by being on the top of the mountain. And, and I see this location as signifying the desire for privacy. If you want to be alone, go hike a big mountain. You won't have to worry about running into me up there. God displays himself through general revelation, but at other times he uses discretion in his revelation and he chooses to reveal himself as he chooses to whom he chooses. We're told that, that while they are up there that Jesus was transfigured before them, which just simply means to be changed. Verse three, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Matthew 17, we get an added detail that his face shone like the sun, to which Alaskans say, what's that? And then we moved on. We see in this moment how insufficient words are to describe the indescribable things of God. I think that's what we're left here with this description. Jesus reveals to these three disciples an element of his true identity and his deity and they grasp for words to describe it. And that would be amazing enough, but we're told uh, that Jesus is joined by Elijah and by Moses, which when you just sort of read through it, like that just stands out, that catches your attention. But it's written as just one of the things that happens very matter of fact. And I think that just drives home the point of how crazy this whole experience must have been. There's hardly a detail that we get that you don't wish that the writer would have been like, and here's a paragraph explaining this part and a paragraph explaining that part and so on. But that isn't what they do. To make sense of that, why is Elijah and Moses there with Jesus in this moment of transfiguration? What's going on there? We have to understand the symbolism that these two biblical characters represent. And especially to a Jewish audience that would have been hearing um, this. To them, Moses represented the law, the, the beginning part of the Old Testament. And Elijah represented the writings of the prophets. So if you're sort of looking at the story of God up to this point where, where Jesus shows up, these two figures are pretty good summary of some of the major Cliss Notes events up to this point so far. And then we see their contrast next to the deity of Jesus and we see how Jesus is the fulfillment that these men had pointed to. Jesus is the fulfillment of that which was written in the law and that which was written in the prophets. Then we come to one of my favorite parts of, of the story here, Peter speaking. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then we get the commentary. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Peter just clearly doesn't do awkward silence well, okay? 
We're going to learn that about him if you haven't. Uh, I laughed. One writer wrote, Peter was so excited and scared, he just had to say something. And there are people in this room that that is probably true of as well. And so sometimes it's just like that. I have found myself in some awkward conversations in my life, but at no point did I shout out, let's all go build forts to try to ease the tension. So that's the route that Peter went. Now, Peter is fun to harass and I take joy in that. But there are some thoughts. Was he really offering something? Was there an intent behind what he was saying. That's kind of a unique and strange uh, offer. Uh, some have, have sort of uh, considered that maybe he had something more permanent in mind, this structure, this tent. Uh, and he, maybe he thinks that these guys are here for a while and, and we need to kind of set up uh, sort of a, a holy headquarters. And, and then, man, if you've been down there, we'll, we're gonna need some help down there. So we'll, we'll get to that. And they were gonna work on that. Maybe he just was enjoying it, and it was this moment that, that was sort of overwhelming to him, and he just wanted it to last a little bit longer. Maybe if we set up a tent, they'll stay like five minutes, 10 more minutes. Maybe they'll stay an hour. A couple questions for these guys, right? And so there's this desire to prolong. But most likely, dude just got awestruck. We harass him for saying silly things, or at least I am here, um, but kudos on the dude for at least finding words. Not just standing there with his jaw on the floor, you know, making guttural sounds like he put together a sentence. I'm proud of him. And in this moment, we see that this cloud comes and covers them, and God the Father speaks. Now, the word for cloud is the same word that we see elsewhere in Scripture and in other God-related moments. Um, The cloud that led the Israelites through the desert, the, the cloud that filled the temple The cloud that we'll see Jesus ascend in later is this same word. And out of this cloud, we hear this beautiful statement. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And like that, it's over. You almost get the sense Jesus just casually said, well, that was fun. You guys ready to hike back down now? (laughs) Like, because Jesus doesn't offer commentary, at least not that we're told, and Seems like this event spoke for itself to these men. Now on the way back down, where he does tell them not to share with other people what they just witnessed until later, uh, which is wise because these guys clearly don't have the full grasp of what's going on yet. They're, they're still trying to figure out where the puzzle pieces go. How does what we just saw, this display of the deity of Jesus mesh with what he's speaking about, about his suffering and his death to come, and they can't quite put that together yet. They've had this picture of, of what Messiah, of this, this conquering, reigning king, and that's not what they're finding, but this clearly is the Messiah, and he's the savior, so how, how do they reconcile all of that? So these guys, you've got to imagine, their head is just scrambling. And so they changed the subject (laughs) and they actually ask a question uh, about Elijah. And and, and I think that it's just part of this, them trying to come to terms with all of this information that they have just seen. They're trying to figure out how does this guy line up with, with what we know has been said in the law from Moses and what we know has been said through the prophets and through Elijah. How does it work? So they ask a question about why must Elijah come first? And uh, if you want to do some, some homework this week, go read Malachi chapter four and we see Moses and Elijah and the day of the Lord referenced in there and uh, might be something interesting to dig into. 
Uh, Mark doesn't make it as clear in, in, in what he wrote to us in this section, but thankfully Matthew, when he details the, the same event, he spells it out more clearly uh, of what Jesus's response is talking about and that he's actually talking um, metaphorically of, of Elijah and then to, into John the Baptist and how John the Baptist came first to prepare the way uh, for the ministry of Jesus. And then the disciples and Jesus head back down the mountain and join the rest of the group below them. So it leads us to this question, what do we do with all of this? And, and why did it happen? And what was the benefit to those that were there? And what is the timeless benefit to those of us here in this room that are, that are hearing it? Why did the transfiguration matter to Jesus? And I think it's important to see that this moment was a time of encouragement, both for Jesus and the disciples. But I think particularly we see it for Jesus. Because what lay in front of him was going to be incredibly difficult. Jesus was fully aware of the journey that awaited him to the cross. The writer of Hebrews in describing Jesus said this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. There was nothing easy about it. There weren't gonna be a lot more breaks before things got really hard for Jesus and for the disciples. And I think we see that even Jesus needed rest in his humanity. I think he needed an intimate moment of connection with the Father. You know what an encouraging word from a loved one can do to you to strengthen you and sustain you. I'm guessing for him, the break from the crowds probably wasn't a bad thing either. It also wasn't just for him. He invited the other three disciples up there to see it and had it recorded for us in scripture. So I think that there are some lessons that we learn through this moment of glorification. Why did this transfiguration matter to Peter, James, and John? And as I look at them, what, what I see is it brought them to a point of clarity on who Jesus was that would strengthen them for the suffering ahead and shape their thinking about Jesus for the rest of their lives. They had this moment where they got to bask in the divine glow of the deity of Jesus and they were gonna need that later to hold on to. I think it's similar, uh, you know, Alaskans, we start to crave, you know, vitamin D as we get towards the end of summer. Like I've gotta be outside, I've gotta get every ounce of sun because I'm gonna need this store of vitamin D later to get me by, Right? Some of you cheat and go to Hawaii or Florida and we judge you for that. And we put an asterisk next to your status as an Alaskan for that year. But you go because you, you know you need that, that vitamin D refill to keep you going. I think the, the disciples needed this glimpse of future glory. But the road to glory walks down a path of suffering and difficulty that they were gonna have to go through to get to it. And so I think it is, is intended as an encouragement to them. And I also think what, that you have to now read the writings of these men with this experience in mind. For your homework, uh, if you wanna follow up, read John chapter one and, and take the transfiguration into account as you read it. And I'm actually gonna read parts of it here and just hear it through the lens of, of what they just experienced and how that colors the language that we see here. John one, verse one, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life 
and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Skip forward, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. I think this moment impacted John and impacted his writing and his understanding of Jesus deeply. But not just him, listen to Peter in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, picking up in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So here, as he's writing in 2 Peter, it's filled in by this experience of the transfiguration today. And I think it had a deep and sustaining impact on both men and their lives and their ministries. Now, what does it mean to us? What does it matter to you? Why does it matter to me? And I will tell you, I think that when we understand what's happening in the transfiguration, it helps us resist the temptation to see a little God. There's no part of this experience that left Peter, James, and John with the idea that Jesus was just a good moral teacher, that Jesus was just a, a wise man with a good head on his shoulders. Because see, when you and I encounter the words and the teaching of Jesus, do you experience their power and their wisdom as the very words of God? Does Jesus give you good suggestions or speak with divine authority into your life? And we need to be reminded about the power of God. See, they got to see his illumination at, at, at full brightness and it gives us something to hang on to at times when we feel like we're walking in the dark. See, this world is broken. I find my wisdom and understanding lacking. I continue to struggle with sin. I need a hope that's bigger than me. I need power that's stronger than me. See, I need what James and Peter and John got to see on that mountain as Lord in my life on a daily basis. I think that the transfiguration moment was given so that we have something to hold on to when we need it. Now, there's plenty that can be taken from the, the transfiguration alone. That could be a whole stand, you know, alone uh, sermon. Um, we're gonna go a little bit further. And when I first saw the, the length of passage that Pastor Eric had assigned, uh, my assumption was he just wants to get through Mark and not have it take the next four years. Uh, and so it was kind of an add-on, uh, tag-on extra passage that, that, that shows up here. But I'll tell you, the more that I looked at it, um, I see some really value in the, the contrasting nature of these two stories, the second one that we're about to see. Um, and there, there was more connections than I, I would have initially guessed as I, as I first read them. So I'm gonna help try to bring some of those to light. I think we can learn something from this juxtaposition. Because see, if in the transfiguration, we were supposed to see this life on the mountaintop and Jesus in full glorious display, light and goodness and hope. In the next section, we see life in the valley. See, as Jesus comes down, Jesus and the disciples are confronted with the reality of the sinful, broken world very swiftly. Tragically, we see it in the suffering of a demon-possessed child that, that Jesus is going to heal. 
For the sake of time uh, this morning, we won't read the whole account. Uh, this isn't the first time we've seen him perform this type of miracle, but there are some things that I want to highlight that we can learn from this particular incident. See, verse 14, Jesus walks down the mountain into an argument between the disciples and the religious leaders of the day. And you've got to imagine for Jesus coming down off the mountaintop to be with arguing and sinful people. It's got to be very similar to getting on an airplane in Hawaii and then landing in Fairbanks in the winter, right? I mean, reality just comes at you like that. And this is me playing in my mind, but at what point did Jesus consider taking Peter up on his camping option, right? It's not written in scripture, but but who's willing to bet at least a little bit that Peter whispered in Jesus' ear, you know, if you followed my advice, we'd be up in a tent right now, you know? Just saying. The scene is this, um, and it's not funny. A man had a son that was possessed by a, a spirit that caused him this great deal of physical and kind of emotional anguish. It had been this way since childhood. Uh, there's just a heartbrokenness uh, as I read this. Uh, and since Jesus was not immediately present, this man sought out the disciples who were there. Verse 18, the man said, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And see, and previously in Mark chapter six, we saw them have success at this, not that long ago. Verse 12, they went out and preached that the people should repent and they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So they had done that before. But for some reason, they are not able to do it this time. But Jesus enters the situation. In verse 22, the father is talking. He says this, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, speaking of the boy. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. See, the man knows that Jesus is the one to come to. But there's still just a, a hint of doubt that Jesus is capable of, of doing what needs to be done. If you can do anything, Jesus responds, if you can? It'd be easy to hear Jesus as, as maybe being offended um, because that's what I would likely be. But I think it's best to hear Jesus' response through a lens of sadness. If you can, you still don't really get who I am. It's not a power issue, it's a faith issue. We get this beautiful moment of a man trying to grow in his faith. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And I think as Christians, we can often be too afraid to speak openly about our doubts. When in reality, the very first place that we need to bring them to is the feet of Jesus and through prayer. See, this man wanted to believe, but he couldn't get there on his own. So he asked God for help. And Jesus demonstrates his power over the spirit and he casts it out. And as the scene closes, we get this interaction that I wanna focus on here as we, as, we, as we get to the end here today. Verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come by prayer is what he told them. We get this interesting moment where Jesus allows the disciples to fail. I think you see a little embarrassment in how they come to him. They asked him, they talked to him privately. And it was an area where they had experienced success prior. 
And it could have very easily led to a time of discouragement for them. Why couldn't we do what we did before? Did did the authority that Jesus gave us, did it run out? What was different this time? What did we do wrong? But Jesus was setting up this teachable moment for the disciples in the midst of their failure because they were humbled by failure. And it didn't lead them to giving up. It led them to go to Jesus to ask for help. What do we need to learn? They asked, why can't we drive it out? He told them that it can only come out by prayer. See, maybe they were looking for a technique or, or give me better words, Jesus, to make it more powerful when, when we say it. Let's see, prayer isn't about magic words or the right order. He was calling them to use prayer as an avenue of dependence on God the Father. And see, after their previous successes and accomplishments, it would be very easy for them to trust in their own ability to accomplish something like this. I see this in me. The more I succeed, the more I trust in me. The more credit I take for what I've accomplished, right? Maybe you're the same way. And that gets me further and further away from trusting in what God is doing. I think there are a lot of lessons that we learn through failure. God let the disciples fail here, not to embarrass them, but to bring them to a point where they were teachable, where they were ready to be dependent on him again. Here's some, some sort of thoughts for, for those of you uh, that are parents uh, here in the room or really anyone, if, if you interact with, with kids. Uh, one of my favorite parenting books that I've ever read is called Real World Parenting by Mark Matlock. And, and I appreciate it. it's not written like a formula. If you do this, you will get this outcome. But it, it looks at some different things that, that parents can do to, to steer the hearts of their kids towards the Lord and hope that they will follow and love him. I remember one chapter stood out to me as I, as I read the book a, a number of years back. And it was a chapter about um, teaching your kids how to fail productively. Helping them see failure, not as a judgment on their worth and ability, but as a reality that we all face and an opportunity for growth. Because see, each one of us has a decision to make when we are confronted with failure in our own lives. Failure can make us bitter or failure can make us better. Because see, when the disciples failed, they went to Jesus. They were willing to ask, what do we need to do differently? And I would just challenge you, think back through your own life. How many of the best lessons that you've learned were learned through easy successes? Or how many of the best lessons that you learned were learned through challenging failures? Because see, when I succeed, I coast. And when I fail, I know that I need God's help. Which one of those is a better posture for me to live in? Which one of those is a better posture for you to live in? Have you ever heard uh, the phrase helicopter parenting? Uh, That's a phrase that that we're familiar with. It's this picture of of a kid and there's a helicopter up there with a parent and the parent is always there within eyeshot, just keeping an eye, making sure things are okay, um, going just as it should. A number of years back, that phrase began to be replaced by a new phrase, lawnmower parenting. And it's the idea of parents that thought that that helicopter just wasn't close enough. And so we need to bring that down to ground level and hover you know, at the, the same level as the grass. They might miss something if they were just helicoptering. They got to get down on the lawnmower and really be involved in all the details. 
I read a lot of books uh, about uh, parenting and teenagers, and there's a newer phrase that's starting to show up. It's called snowplow parenting. And this describes not a parent that, that's just watching or watching it very closely, but this is a parent that paves the way for their kid and pushes every obstacle out of the way so that their kids never have the opportunity to fail. This is the parent that yells at the teacher when their kid's struggling because my child would never, you fill in the rest of the sentence there. See, they see successful parenting as preventing any hardship and any difficulty from entering the lives of their kids. And they want kids who have never failed and, or even have to worry about the possibility of failure. And it makes the goal of raising kids their own happiness instead of their development and character. But see, Jesus let the disciples come to a point of failure where they realized that he, they couldn't do it on their own. And then he would teach them. And not just here. Think back to the feeding of the 5,000. As Jesus' disciples are standing in front of an enormous crowd of people with no money and very limited resources, he looks at them and says, you feed them. And their jaws hit the ground and say, this is impossible. And they fail. And then Jesus says, let me teach you. Let me show you how. Watch this. Failure as a teachable moment. And here we see the same thing, I think. Failure as a moment that leads them to greater understanding. And I will say, Christians, we can awful struggle with this. We develop some bad habits of whitewashing our failures. Are we teaching the next generation to live by grace? Or are we teaching them to not fail and be defined by your outcomes? Now, I, I was touched and, and I really appreciated the story that Pastor Eric shared last week about a personal failure and forgiveness and walking that out in his family. We need more of that. Hopefully, Christians with an appropriate view of failure, we can live life through grace. We can find it possible to be a little more transparent with our shortcomings, with our failures. If you're a parent, ask yourself this question. Have I taught my children how to fail well? Have I modeled God-honoring failure in my own life? Have I shared with them my own moments of weakness or do I only present my best front to them? Do I allow them to fail with grace and forgiveness? To finish out where we're going um, today, there's this moment where, picking up in verse 30, where Jesus predicts uh, his death again. And uh, I give credit to the, the disciples here. Uh, they show wisdom in not saying anything. They know what they don't know at this point. Uh, and there's a great proverb in, proverb in chapter 17 that says, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Uh, so the disciples, this is as wise as we might see them for a little while. They know, we don't know, and they're quiet. I hope that this has been, been thought-provoking for you, the, this juxtaposition between the mountaintop and the valley. I hope that you are encouraged by the mountaintop and, and this meetup between Jesus and Moses and Elijah and these disciples. And I hope that you hear it through the eyes of Peter and James and John, this awe-inspiring moment of the majesty of Jesus Christ. I hope you hear that today. 
I love the way that, that Paul writes it. He says this, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Walk away today with just a reminder the majesty of Jesus. And remember that that's the Jesus that we hold on to when we find ourselves living in the valley and not on the mountaintop. And we get bogged down with the struggles of this world and bogged down with our own failures. We have the opportunity to decide, are we going to respond with bitterness when we fail or brokenness when we fail? Are we gonna take those moments and lay them before the Lord at his feet and say, will you help me? Because see, when I walk through the valley in this life, I need the Jesus that was on top of that mountain to be walking right beside me. And I think that you do too. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful that you do not leave us here to walk alone. Lord, we get these moments, these snapshots, and oh, how I wish I was there or that there were photos or videos that we could have seen the glory of this moment, but we get to see it through the eyes of of these disciples and of these gospel writers. Heavenly Father, we are to be struck by the majesty of Jesus. And Lord, not just to live on the mountaintop and to just be continually overwhelmed, but Lord, to let that majesty walk alongside us because life is challenging, life is difficult, sin has broken us in this world and we stumble and fall more often than we'd like to. Heavenly Father, may we invite you to walk beside us and in those moments of failure and difficulty, Lord, may we not run and hide, but may we bring them to your feet. Lord, you can do this. We can't do it alone. We don't do it in our own strength. But you change hearts, you draw people to you and I ask that you would continue to do that. In the name of the glorious, awe-inspiring Messiah, amen.